the Buddha said, there are these two kinds of persons who are rare in the world. One who takes the initiative in helping others and one who is grateful and thankful. Two rare kinds of individuals in the world. One who takes the initiative in helping others and one who is grateful and thankful. I'm not sure those are the qualities that each of us might select as being the most rare and kind of unique of individuals in the world. I'm not sure our society would say that. But I think through our own inner observation, we can understand what the Buddha is saying, appreciate what the Buddha is saying, that those who have a, have the heart to proactively care for and do what they can for helping others is a pretty noble, uh, not necessarily selfless sacrifice, but a very noble um, motivation in life. And those who are grateful and thankful seems like such a simple thing to do. But if we really, if we or others really appreciated the opportunities that we have or were grateful for the cup being half full rather than half empty, we really wouldn't have much to complain about. Because let's face it, we collectively live at the top of the heap of humanity. Uh, Of all the human beings that have ever lived on the face of the earth, it's hard to find a group that has more opportunities, more material wealth, more access to anything and everything that humankind has developed, created, grown, and we have, it's at our fingertips. There are limitations within the world, of course, but really, if we ask ourselves the question, is this enough? Most of us cannot say, I have plenty, or I have enough. And so, when we look at our life, you know, we have a tendency sometimes to see the glass as half empty rather than half full. And I think what the Buddha is pointing to in you know, the Four Noble Truths is that the glass will never be full. Desire is insatiable. Look, desire is insatiable. That means you will never have all that you want. And so it really is incumbent on us to ask ourselves, okay, and we've all lived long enough to know that that which satisfied our desires in our 20s 
doesn't work in our 30s, in our 30s, it doesn't work in our 40s, and for those of you who are in our 20s, be careful. <laughs> and it's, it keeps going, you know, and when you're in your mid-60s, what served well enough at 50 doesn't look like enough. And so we, we can confirm just by the trajectory of our life that we don't run out of desires. We don't run out of needs. We don't run out of wanting more. And so where is it that we're going to find the end of craving? Where are we going to find the end of that basic dissatisfaction with the conditions of our life? Of course, the practice that we're that we've been doing to bring a recognition to our awareness, so that we can really see and recognize what is going on in our life, what is moving us, what is jerking us around, what is what are the beliefs, assumptions, desires, fears, joys, sorrows. They all come into view. And rather than blindly acting them out, we begin to look at them, feel our way into them, learn about their nature, so that we're not quite so entranced, enchanted by them, and ultimately learn how to let go of them in our mind. Some things we can let go of just by pure intention. You know, when you find yourself sitting and your mind is caught up in some drama and you become aware of it, it's pretty easy to say, come on, I don't have to be doing that now. I've told this story before, but when I first started Dharma practice, I had been out of university a few years and when I was at university I'd studied engineering and at that time, back in the 60s, um, we didn't have handheld calculators, everything was done longhand, math, and a lot of math, and with a slide rule if anything. And so I just had taken a lot of math courses and advanced math courses and my mind was very habituated to doing numbers. Very complex formulas and numbers. So I go on retreat. (laughs) And when the mind wandered away from the object, it goes to solving these mathematical equations and multiplying out these long numbers and dividing by these long numbers. You know, just kind of like... Like a human calculator. And I... I'd kind of recognize that's what I was doing and I'd say, is this necessary right now? <laughs> I mean, and that level of letting go, you can, you know, if you, if you see it, intention can let it go. But you have to practice even a little bit of awareness to see these well, trained habits of the mind 
that we may not be that we've been that we've trained the mind to do but we haven't seen them operating so beneath the radar beneath the horizon and until you look and then you see my god the mind is just full of stuff that is is going on all all the time but we just don't see it we're too busy we're too caught up in the immediacy of the moment but a little bit of awareness can go a long ways with that but we've seen also that we uncover other habits of mind the tendency to be reactive with desire or impatience or comparing mind or jealousy or self-consciousness or fear and we see these habits it's not it's not hard to see and our whole personal history review reveals a lifetime of similar reactivity and when caught in any of these emotionally reactive states of mind you can tell yourself stop <laughs> let that go you don't you don't need to kind of rehash that memory of 20 30 years ago but your mind doesn't listen that kind of letting go is not susceptible to the power of intention the power of intention cannot cut through that level of habit in the mind and so we have to train the mind guide the mind to a certain training and a non-reactivity to begin to see how to let go and as i mentioned the other night there are there are deeper layers of belief that are more subtle more tenacious and less accessible than emotional reactivity and they cause a tremendous amount of suffering too and so the path that we're on is a multi-layered um path and we can see that it really is the path to freedom liberation freedom from habit freedom from emotional reactivity freedom from beliefs that lead to suffering that are wrongly understanding the way things are and this is what the real freedom is freedom from delusion freedom from reactivity attachment and aversion freedom from carelessness with our speech and actions intentions and this is the buddha's eightfold noble path when you think of your life and what has really been a great blessing in your life what has brought you the most goodness or happiness or the most sense of well-being what is it what is it that re- really if you had to kind of fill in the blank this quality experience thing whatever has been the most helpful beneficial condition of my life 
What would you say? My yeah. husband. Pardon? My husband. Your husband. You're a very lucky man. <laughs> the Dharma, practicing, being born in the West, having an education, mm-hmm. uh, not living in a war-torn country, being healthy, getting an education, yeah. Hearing the Dharma, certainly. Having the opportunity to practice the Dharma, mm-hmm. certainly. having painful experiences that you can learn from yeah. or guidance. Pain in itself is not the blessing. It's having the skill or the teachings to really learn from them to how to let go, how to, how to manage them. The Buddha identified, when the Buddha was asked, what are, what are the great blessings for humans? What, what is it that, that conduces to happiness in the human realm? He had a whole, a whole um, list, 38 uh, blessings. And I've just kind of collected them into groups. And the most worldly of the blessings are to reside in a suitable location, you know, a, a peaceful country, where the weather is temperate, uh, where there are opportunities, things like that. And to have a job. How many people in the world do not have an adequate job to just provide for themselves minimally? That's a huge, I mean, that's a huge burden to try to overcome any with any other thing. And then... To be educated, to be skilled in the crafts of house, being a householder, and to be able to care for your relatives, whether they're your parents or your children, but to be able to, to have the resources, to have the knowledge, to have the opportunity to care for you. Because you can imagine, as there are places in the world where you either cannot or are not allowed to have those opportunities. How much suffering that would be. And all of us have all of these. I mean, we live in a great place, we have education, uh, we have some degree of financial security. Anybody that's here is doing okay. And to be educated, that's just... On the, on the kind of the practical, economic, human relationship level. And that, that's, that's a half dozen qualities. And where the Buddha goes from there is just to more refined qualities, opportunities. The next layer of blessings that the Buddha identified is really um, the ways of our, related, our relationships. To be able to live simply, to live in harmony with one another, to exercise self-control in your speech and your actions, to avoid causing harm, to be virtuous or non-harming of others, and to avoid intoxicants that really 
can cause a lot of destruction in your personal relationships. Wow. Those are what the Buddha identified as some of the most important, the most (laughs) valuable assets to have for happiness and a sense of well-being in the human realm. And most of those are available through awareness and through training. Through if you if you understand the value of right speech, harmony, you know, being self-disciplined, emotionally intelligent, then you can work work towards it. But that even that level of happiness and well-being in our life is not easy. It's not easy. A lot of suffering is caused by carelessness just in this realm of the human life. Then when he moves on to more inner qualities, he identifies being content, being humble, being reverent, reverential, uh, understanding the, the reverential feelings towards others or places or things. And there was this one word that I thought I knew the meaning of, it was docile, being docile. And I thought, now why would I want to be docile? That's kind of like a cow. <laughs> Isn't that what cows are? Kind of like, hmm, kind of like, yeah. You know. And that's not what docile means. Docile means be willing to learn or being willing to be taught. Think of that. That's a source of happiness. That's a blessing in our life. Being willing or able, allowing yourself to be taught. That means you've got to recognize someone that's got something to teach. But those are, these are the inner qualities of contentment, humility, being patient, being willing to learn. Even with all that, we're still in the kind of the personal development realm, emotional management realm, uh, beginning maybe an ascetic sense of appreciation of things, before we ever get to the spiritual practices, which are the fourth gradient, if you will. Of course, the Buddha identifies these initial spiritual practices as as, uh, causes for happiness in our life. And when I mention them, I want you to think about in your life how this or these opportunities or these experiences were, are, or have not yet been a blessing in your life. To not associate with fools. (laughs) Maybe you don't know any fools, you know, lucky. But, on the other hand, to associate with the wise. You know, if, you, if you were asked who has been the most um, who has been the most of a benefactor or a mentor or a supporter, that, someone that you've learned from or that you've really uh, taken in those lessons from? Who would that person be? 
Is there someone, or many, few, a couple, people in your life who you could say, I am really, really happy that I met them in this lifetime and that I had the opportunity that I did to learn from them or to share this much of my life with them. Is that hard to think of? Is it obvious? Yeah. Are there many? A few. A few. Yeah. And then, you know, to to visit with spiritual people, have the opportunity to hear the Dharma, to discuss the Dharma, to practice the Dharma. These are all beginning spiritual practices, really, that are the cause for happiness. Then we get to the more advanced uh, spiritual accomplishments, if you will. To be um, free of anxiety. Haven't been there, haven't got there yet. I'm still working on that one. Uh, To be stainless and pure in your speech, your actions, and your thinking, your mind. To be safe. That means really not to be safe externally, but to be safe internally, knowing that you know how to protect your own heart and mind. And then to realize the Four Noble Truths, which is, of course, to liberate the mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. Along the way, being grateful. All of these blessings that I've mentioned, that the Buddha mentioned, we have, a, we have a, an abundance of them in our life. We have so much to be grateful for. And so often the day goes by and we're still not yet satisfied, not yet content, still looking for something else. It's said that in, there's a lot of interest now in Western science uh, studying gratitude because gratitude is a powerful uh, emotion, it's a powerful mental state, it's a powerful character trait. It is said that it's the single most effective intervention for engendering a sense of well-being. To express your gratitude to others. Particularly a mentor or benefactor of some sort. It is the single most effective thing you can do for feeling a sense of well-being. Well, that's not far from Count your blessings, right? Daily. Just recount your blessings. Just what what good opportunities or experiences or blessings did you have today? Pie for lunch? <laughs> some would say that was a blessing. Some would say it was a curse, but nevertheless. Um, but really... How often do you get to live, how often do you get to share your life with 45 other people for a week in this much harmony? Ever? Ever, right? No, no. Doing something together that you all like. 
don't go to work looking for that. <laughs> you know, and I'm not sure many neighborhoods would provide that. It's simple, isn't it? When you really stop and look, now what is of value here? So the Buddha was very um, precise in identifying, not not woo woo wow wow, not not even a lot of what Western culture offers us. All that all that he's speaking of are very simple qualities of the heart and the mind and human relationships and personal development, you know, and if it can be in a a non-war-torn country and a kind of with relative peace and a, and, a, and a moderate climate, good. With just enough finances to provide for your own physical, mental, and uh, health needs. Wow. Are we looking for something that's different than that? What are we looking for in our life? Why... Did you ever ask yourself why you're not yet content with the way your life is? Or are you totally content? I can see. That's kind of, yeah, maybe, well, kind of, maybe. Huh? We're on our way. We're on our way. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good aspiration. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to speak a little bit about and, and, and just cause you to reflect a little bit on what is of value um, in your life now and to really acknowledge it uh, and acknowledge it to yourself with a sense of gratitude. Now, I'm going to tell a story and it's just instructive. So, I was offering a retreat and there was this elderly uh, woman of color on the retreat who was a well-known, nationally known uh, figure. And so she came for her... I gave a talk on karma, you know, uh, karma and rebirth and, you know, doing good in order to have whatever. So she comes into the interview and she's a powerful woman, you know, personally powerful and a lot of (laughs) gravitas. So she says to me, she says, I don't know about this rebirth stuff, but if I'm going to be born again, I want to be born in the dominant gender and the dominant race. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, why, you think white guys don't suffer? So I said, more important than either of those conditions or whatever, is if you're going to aspire to any opportunity, make sure it includes access to the Dharma. Wherever you want to be reborn, whatever conditions you want to be reborn in, or whatever conditions you want to see in your life, you don't have to wait till reborn, next week, make sure it's where the Dharma is accessible. Because lack of access to the Dharma and you don't have these teachings, you don't have the opportunity, you don't, you don't get it. You don't get, you get something, but 
if you really consider the value of the teachings and the opportunity that you have in practicing to see your own mind, see where you're entangled, to let go, to end that suffering, <coughs> not insignificant. quality that the Buddha was talking about, the gratitude, the rare individuals, those who are grateful. And the other quality is those who take the initiative to help others. It's really what uh, Alexis was speaking about last night, you know, when the Dalai Lama was talking about the bodhicitta, having the heart of compassion that interest in others, acting to relieve the suffering of others in whatever way and how moved he was by that. It's really that quality of heart that can step outside of our own self, limited self-interest and see that no matter what it is we have or however it is that we make our way in the world, we have an opportunity and a gift to offer to others. Whether it's time, or knowledge, or love, or material goods, or opportunity, or just hello. Several years ago now, I had a small group of students in Portland that I used to come see four or five times a year, and time with and so I was coming to Portland a lot and most times I'd stay in a hotel in town and then go to spend a day with them and at that time and I haven't been back to Portland so much recently there were a lot of street people in Portland and I suppose there is in every city I, I, I never lived in a city so I didn't know really I mean I see them occasionally but um it was just a tremendous amount of street people and panhandlers and uh, actually I noticed when I would walk out of the hotel to go to the restaurant and have to pass several if not many I was kind of scared I was, I'd kind of try to walk on the other side of the road but they were over there too or take the long way around but they were there too and it was just like uh, it was uncomfortable for me I didn't know how to relate to them. I, you know, a lot of them are, well, I, I don't recognize them. I, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to think about them. Some were more aggressive, some were less aggressive, some were really intoxicated. Um, it's hard to know, but I was really uncomfortable. And I just dodged them as much as I could and ignored them when I couldn't dodge them. And I did that for a while. And then I realized, at some point I realized, awareness, thankfully, came to my rescue and said, hey, you're suffering. <laughs> you're suffering when you see these people, when you have to walk around them and you're fearful and you're anxious and you, you feel insecure and vulnerable. And that's, that's, that's what I noticed. So I said, wow, that's, that's a level of suffering that 
I was unaware of until I kind of came out of denial, really. And I said, well, clearly they aren't either able or capable or going to take the opportunity to do anything about it. I better. I have to deal with my own suffering. So I, I made this kind of intention to not pass panhandlers or homeless people without greeting them. Wow. Took a lot of courage on my part. Took a lot of courage to approach them and just to kind of catch their attention, look them in the eye, and just ask them, how are you doing? What do you need? And I tell you, you get a lot of interesting answers. <laughs> you know, what do you need? Oh, Two dollars. What do you need? A bottle of beer. What do you need? Whatever. And, you know, I would, I would engage them long enough in a conversation to feel a connection. To feel like, okay, I was talking to them. They were talking to me. We were, we were connecting. And then I would ask them, you know, what, what do you need or what do you want? And, you know, if it was a few dollars, I would give them a few dollars, two dollars, five dollars. Occasionally I'd give a little more, but um, it was just a way of acknowledging them, really. And through that practice of generosity, I made it a practice of generosity, I came to realize that when, when you offer something like that to a homeless or a street person or whatever, you, you may give them a small token of support, financial support. But more than that, what you give them is recognition as someone of value. Just talking to them as a human being, of like, you know, someone who's interested, not expecting to solve their problems or fix them or you know, moralize to them or preach to them. Not, no, no agenda other than, how are you doing? What do you need? Here's something to help you today. Really, what we give in such situations is love and acceptance. We accept them. I, I could accept them for just what they were. Didn't have to fix them. Didn't have to take them home with me. Didn't have to moralize to them. It's just, they're a human being with their own level of suffering, wanting some relief, and I could offer a little bit. Well, that felt so good. And it really isn't that expensive. You know, to just a few times a day. Of course, I couldn't, couldn't do it to everybody, but, you know, would make a point of meeting and greeting a few people a day, just to have that experience of unconditional loving and uh, helping someone. It's very powerful. Very powerful uh, initiative. Proactive. And while it may have been a token to them or certainly didn't solve their problems they'd be there the next day it was a huge gift to myself because of overcoming the fear 
the sense of insecurity, vulnerability, and I don't know these people, they're all available. They're all, they're, they're, there's real human beings in there. You know, they're not, they're not aliens. They're real human beings. And you can relate to Most of them can be, you can relate to them at some level, if you're creative, sometimes. It was a, it was a real lesson to me in uh, how to recognize my own suffering and what I could do about it. Now, normally, we just we we live with that level of suffering without without thinking we can or should or need to do anything about it. On the other hand, doesn't solve the problem. There's huge financial inequity or economic inequity in this country and there's huge mental health problems and there's huge insolvable uh, conditions that are just, you know, easy to get overwhelmed by. But one thing about doing even a small action like that is in the face of overwhelming suffering, overwhelming conditions, you can feel empowered. And that's important. You may not be solving... It's like Mother Teresa, you know, when somebody said, every day you go out on the streets of Calcutta and you pick up a couple of dead people, or dying people to bring back to the hospice, clean them up, bathe them, and they die. You go out the next day and you do the same thing. It's never going to end. She says, I'm not a social worker. I'm not trying to solve the problem. I'm not a politician trying to solve the problem. I'm trying to love this person who's suffering. Oh, okay. We can do that. We can't solve the problem, but we can do that. And in the process, feel very empowered and um, actually it's very meaningful. Make Making meaning and valuable meaning in our life. The same thing for me uh, occurs when I think of what's happening to the earth and uh, the human activity causing climate disruption and the current suffering and the <clears throat> predicted uh, inevitable greater suffering suffering yet to come. And it really, it bothers me. It really bothers me. And uh, I realize that I can't, I can't stop the situation. I can't fix it. I can be a part of it. But even more than doing my, minimizing my footprint and increasing my handprint is to do something that feels proactive and empowering, which I have done planting trees. It's like trees are a great source of what's wrong with this world, and but there's no amount of trees that you could plant to take care of, believe me, the problem. But still, it's an empowering, uh, proactive uh, initiative to address my suffering because of how I feel about this situation. And I think that each one of us has, if it's not the world, if it's not the world's climate, it's the neighborhood crime problem, or it's, you know, it's, you know, the availability of drugs, or whatever it is. There's all kinds of things that we collectively suffer from or feel afraid of or have our life compromised by 
that we just avoid. That we avoid, we deny, we minimize, we just kind of... And we're, it's in our face, we're aware of it, but we don't see how much we're suffering by not doing anything about it. We're suffering. And while, as I just demonstrated, you can't solve the problem, you can't make it all go away, you can't fix it for everybody, you can do something to minimize your own suffering. And that's not insignificant. Mahasi Sayadaw is uh, one of the grandfathers of the Vipassana tradition in America, in the West. He said, It is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. Practicing generosity. Of course, generosity itself is a, is a mindfulness practice, awareness practice. It's a practice of letting go, or renunciation practice. It's a happiness practice, because by practicing generosity, you do become happier. And it's, an, it's a practice of compassion, caring for the suffering others and relieving it by offering, as I said, knowledge, goods, token support, whatever it is that you offer. Each night when I give the um, kind of the review of the day and just kind of acknowledge the benefit of the work that we've done with ourselves and collectively and how important it is in the lives of everyone that we share life with that actually by purifying our mind purifying our speech and behavior, purifying our understanding, reducing, understanding our own suffering and letting go or minimizing it. It really is not just a self-absorbed uh, indulgence. You know, we become a force of goodness in our own life and it affects everyone that we come in contact with. You know, the vibrations of your heart kind of radiate out and if there is a greater understanding and a greater ease and a greater sense of peace and less suffering, it touches people. It's not only those who are unskillful and bad, at, bad hats or bad actors that influence us. We too, with the goodness of our own heart and mind, can affect others. In this way, it's kind of like, I, I'm kind of a subscriber to the stealth stealth enlightened beings in society model. I think, you know, the more that we practice and the more that we develop these qualities, we don't have to announce, we don't have to proselytize, we don't have to do anything except live quietly in our lives and touch people. And it will have a profound impact, as we see already. You know, mindfulness has become, well, big business, big secular business. And uh, it's having its effect. When I was in Burma, I was in the monastery in Rangoon. And the way society is organized in Burma, at the top of the social heap are monks. They are the most revered, respected, honored, valuable members of their society in a way. And that's their position. And so they, they have a very prominent role in the lives of communities, often serving in rural communities, these are smaller communities, as 
the village shaman, psychologist, uh, priest. I mean, it's just teacher, moral teacher. They serve a, a whole category of roles. They're kind of like the, the social moral conscience of the village. They just kind of hold it together that way. And in cities, of course, they are the trainers of morality, the trainers of uh, the mind, if you will, and, of course, keeping the spiritual life of the community alive. I was just talking to uh, uh, Alexis uh, over dinner, and we were having dinner with uh, the owners, owner-operators of this place, and they were saying that, oh, they were, they were told that in Burma, the most uh, skillful, most, the best meditators are young teenage girls. And it's true. Young teenage girls are the most effective, efficient, uh, skilled meditators in, in Burma. And it's because, well, they're not, they're not yet engaged in the family life or occupation. There's not much of a dating scene for teenagers in, in Burma. And they're very obedient to what the teacher says. And they have a tremendous amount of mental energy. Just tremendous. And so they come to the monastery. They Often they come during the school break, you know, during the hot season for two months. And they come, you know, starting at age 13. And they do a two-month retreat every year until they finish college. And phenomenal. Just phenomenal. They are amazing meditators. And, of course, when they get older, they have that basic training and understanding of themselves and the mind and emotions and each other to raise their families, do their jobs. Powerful, powerful uh, force in the social, political, economic, spiritual life of Burma. Well, at this meditation center, I'd been there for about four and a half years and... One day, these two Burmese women came to the door of my cottage and they knocked, they wanted to come in, they came in, and they said, oh, in so many words, we'd like you to meet our teacher. I knew what that meant. Every family has a Sayadaw, every family has a senior monk that's their kind of family authority, or their counselor, their psychologist, their social worker, whatever's needed. And I said, I said, well, you know, I've, I've met a lot of monks. I've been here for four and a half years. I, I don't, I'm not interested. And they said, oh, no, no, you, you, you want to meet our teacher. You've you got to meet our teacher. And they were insistent. They were just insistent. And I said, okay, all right. So the appointed day came. They came and picked me up. They, we went in a pickup truck, which was going to be to the northern suburb, one of the northern suburbs of... Rangoon, and uh, on the way they, they were telling me about this monk that we were going to go see. And he had been, uh, he was quite elderly at that time, even 70-something probably, maybe, 70, 80, I don't know. And uh, we were going to go see him, and their, their parents had been his supporter ever since they were young. And uh, he was just, a, just had a lot of integrity and lived very simply and 
was pretty renowned for his meditation skills, development of mind, and whatever comes with it. And in fact, he had been the, one of the first teachers in the meditation center that I was in when it opened in 1949. And Mahasasaya had always invited to open this meditation center, and he asked this monk who he knew would practice to come and teach there. So he was teaching, and the meditation center was open for lay people, not just for monks and nuns, but primarily for lay people, which was a novel uh, opportunity in Burma. Before that, if you'd wanted teachings of meditation, you really had to be a monk or a nun for life and wander around and try to find somebody that knew something about it to get it. But Mahasi Sayadaw knew how to meditate, was willing to teach lay people, set up a monastery or meditation center for that, invited this monk. So he was there, and it became very popular. Within a couple of years, there were just thousands of people coming to meditate, and this monk got more and more responsibilities, teaching and administrative responsibilities, and after a few years, he asked Mahasi Saito if he could be relieved of his duties, because he was kind of like, well, stressed, maybe burnt out, uh, busy, too busy, whatever, not what he wanted to do. And Mahasi Saito said, no, he'd like him to continue teaching. And the way it is with monks is, that's the way it is with monks. You know, your your superior makes the decisions for you. Uh, okay, so he kept teaching, and as the center got bigger, and he had more responsibilities teaching, and administratively, it was quite a burden. And so after a few more years, he went to Mahasi Saito and asked again if he could be relieved of his duties so he could go to his own practice. And again, Mahasi Saito said no. A few more years, lots more students, a lot more administrative responsibilities. Finally, after he'd been there 10 years, he went to Mahasi Saito and asked him for the third time, and there's something special about asking for things three times in the Buddhist tradition. Okay, so at that time, Mahasi Saito said, okay. So this monk left, and he went to what was then kind of like the northern suburbs of Rangoon, and he found a, a an old monastery, or a monastery where he could have, uh, they gave him a little, a couple of acres of trees. And he decided that was his monastery. He was going to live there. So he lived there. Now, he, now when I was going to see him, he'd been there 30 years. Mm-hmm. So as we drove there, we're driving through this sprawling suburb, you know, to get to this little oasis of trees surrounded by this sprawling suburb. Along the way, the women told me that he had gone there just to do his own practice, lived very simply, didn't allow uh, kind of the development of the center, didn't allow cement buildings, didn't have electricity in, didn't put a phone in. You know, all he had was uh, some small cottages for a few monks to practice and a big dormitory for elderly women who finished their family responsibilities that come and live in the monastery, kind of take care of the place and a huge meditation hall that the local people had built so they could come to practice there every evening after work where he would teach them meditation. So they'd heard about him having been a teacher at the other place and so they kind of followed him. Now, his little oasis of trees was in the middle of this vast sprawl of shanty houses 
of people who had come there to get his teaching. I went in, we went in and did our bows and they talked a little bit and then I told him that I was, I'd been in Burma for four and a half years, I was soon going to be returning to the States and I wanted to know if he had had any advice. He's very thoughtful and he's very serene and he's just very present. And without much hubbub or anything, he just said, you know, as long as you keep practicing, you'll do all right. That's it. <laughs> okay, it wasn't very grandiose. It was pretty simple. It's just like, don't give up your practice. You know, if you want, whatever you do, don't stop practicing. So I was really impressed. We, we stayed there for a little while, and I was really impressed with what they told me about him. He was very prescient. You know, he could seem to be a mind reader, seem to be able to see into the future. He just, just had extraordinary powers, rumors. And so I was really impressed. So I, I asked him if I could come practice with him before I left the country. So he said, sure. Of course, at that time in Burma, it was so tight, military rule, that you couldn't, couldn't do anything. But somehow I finagled the signatures I need. I got permission from the government uh, to go stay there. So I went over. A couple of weeks later, went over to stay for a couple of weeks. And when I got there... Um, I had a translator at that time. I just said, I'd like to stay for a couple of weeks. He said, okay, you can come with me. And he took me out to the out the back door of his little cottage to a room that's about six feet wide, about 60 feet long. And it has a bed at one end and a toilet at the other end. <laughs> <laughs> that was where I was going to do my practice, sit and walk. And the windows had shutters on them so that you, got, you could get a breeze through them, but you couldn't look out through them. You could only see the ground right there. So you couldn't see out. You could only see the ground, but you got fresh air. And I was to go in there and practice. That seemed ideal. That was just perfect for me. So I said, well, when do we have to go on alms round? Because monks go on the alms round to get their meals, every, get their food every day. And he said, oh, you should, have, you should take this opportunity to practice. I and the other monks will go on alms round. We'll share our food with you. Great. So I go in. And I'm in. <laughs> you know, sit and walk. You know, for many hours as you're awake, sit and walk. Day after day after day. Well, after a few days, you know, the mind gets a little claustrophobic. The room was fine, but the mind was pretty tight. So I was like, oh, I'd like to go out and walk around the monastery and get a little change of scenery. <laughs> <laughs> So I go, I go to the door, open the door to step out, and he's standing right there. <laughs> he looks at me with his kind, benevolent eyes. He's just like, is it okay? Is, is everything okay? And I just... <laughs> went back in and closed the door. So I practiced a few more days, you know, another week, and it really got claustrophobic. <laughs> so I said, God, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out and walk around the monastery. Good. So I go to the door, <laughs> open the door, and he's right there. And I said, Wow. I don't know, I don't know who this guy is, but. <laughs> 
clearly he's got something on the ball. And that's how it was. I practiced for a couple of weeks, and then the last night um, he said, you know, tomorrow you can go on alms round with us. We leave at 6 o'clock or 6.30, whatever it was. But that night there was a ceremony nearby where they have these, you know, they set up the loudspeakers and people are chanting and fun, raising funds and talking and jabbering all night. You don't get much sleep. But in the morning, you know, got on my robes, went out to get in line with the rest of the monks, and he checks, you know, the side comes and checks out all the monks, make sure the robes are rode right, they got the, you know, everything they need. And then he starts leading us out the, out the monastery. We're walking across the little trail of the monastery to get to the edge of the forest. And we get to the edge of the forest, and he's in the lead, and he steps aside, and he waves the other monks through, and the three or four go through, and then it's my turn. He pulls me aside, and the, the six or eight, ten monks maybe, went out, and he took me, and he went back into the monastery and went out the back way. So he said, it was just me and him, he and I. And uh, we were walking along these oxcart trails out the back side of the monastery, Nobody out there. But before I turned around, went out. I looked, and ahead of the monks going, they went out the usual way. The side of the road was lined up with hundreds of people, waiting to offer the monks food. But he said, "No, let's let's go this way." So we went out the back way, and there was nobody out there for five or ten minutes. We, they must have been all out the other side, and we just walking along, and it was ox cart trails with ox cart dung and a few bicycle tracks. And I was following him. It was like following the Buddha. Mm-hmm. It was like, there's, it's as ancient there then as at the time of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. And this monk was so impressive. It was just so powerful that it was really, really a powerful experience. When we came to uh, an intersection where there's a couple of you know tea stalls or something like that, some little boy saw us and says, Ponji Labi, meaning the monks are coming on alms round. So everybody that was around there, they they go to the tea shop and they get some tea or they get some rice, they get a, a donut or they get something, anything. And they, they come to the side of the road and kneel down on their slippers or sandals. Or if they got boots on, they take off their boots and put them down. So we came up to the first person, stopped, and you stand there for 10 minutes and different people are coming and bringing... Your bowl gets full pretty quick. And somebody goes to the store and gets some plastic bags. And little temple boys, they, they you dump your bowl in the bag and the bowls get full again you dump the bag. It's just dozens of people come. Well, we, he took me on an alms round that day, like two hours, just through parts of the, the that sprawling suburb that he knew everyone there and they knew him. And wherever he went... It was just unannounced. There were all kinds of people that were just waiting to offer food, incense, flowers, just whatever monks need. Okay. So after a couple hours, we went back to the monastery and we ate. We sat down with the other monks and ate. Of course, there was like (laughs) much more food than we ever could eat. But monks can't keep food overnight. So whatever the monks don't eat, then the lay women that are there and a few laymen that help run the place, they eat, and the rest of it goes back out to serve the poor in the community. And that's the way it had been for 30 years. He just lived there doing his own practice, 
And out of respect for him and his practice, people came to, to practice themselves, and he taught them. They supported him, and he offered the Dharma. And just through the power of the integrity of his life and the sincerity of his practice, this whole community was born. That's the kind of effect that we have the potential of having in our life. If we can be a force, a center of integrity, sincerity, practice, awareness, wisdom, love, compassion, that's the effect we have in our life. Maybe on a much smaller scale, but nevertheless, that's the power of the practice. That monk is, was the Shwe Yumin Sayadaw, which is Utejaniya's teacher. Before he passed away, he built this other monastery, meditation center, for Utejaniya to teach at. What we're learning here is how to be aware. But how to live with that awareness in the world for the benefit of others. Shantideva says, All the world the joy contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for ourselves. The Buddha said that the gift of the Dhamma excels all of the forms of giving, meaning if you practice the Dhamma, you offer it to others as the gift, which is the truth. If you practice the truth, you offer others the gift of the truth. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. <clears throat> 